Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. My name is Anton Shekhovtsov. I'm the chair of the Austria-based NGO, Center for Democratic Integrity. Uh, we deal with uh, analysis of uh, authoritarian influence uh, in Europe and of course uh, the Visegrad Insight, the, uh, the think tank and also the publication uh, is one of the best uh, sources of information not only on, on Central Eastern Europe but also on the adversaries of free and liberal Europe. Welcome back to all our Visegrad Inside listeners. My name is Malik Banat, Junior Fellow at VI, and I am very happy to return with you to discussing the most pressing, tumultuous and impactful events on Central and Eastern Europe from Central and Eastern Europe. Today I am joined by Anton Chekhovtsov, the Director of the Austria-based Center for Democratic Integrity. Hello, Anton. Hello, Malik, and uh, thank you for having me. No problem at all. It's great to be with you again. I believe the last time we met was in Brussels in back in June when we were discussing the future of Europe at a strategic foresight exercise for uh, uh, the Visegrad Insight report actually coming out this week, War and the Future of Europe. It lays out four different scenarios that hinge on the challenges and opportunities for Europe in the realm of democratic security by the year of 2030. And its deliberation has been a year-long process of scenario mapping and appending material that has been generated during the civil society-powered foresight exercise we have conducted with our partners, notably the Bratislava Policy Institute in Slovakia, Eurocreative France, European Forum Albach on Austria, the Fondation du Wagner in Italy, Forum 2000 in Czechia, and the Open Lithuania Foundation. The report is co-founded by the European Commission's Europe for Citizens program, and of course the development of it would not be possible without the Institute of Human Sciences in Vienna, fellowship for our editor-in-chief Wojciech Przybylski, and the Erste Foundation. To all our listeners, do tune in this Thursday, 11.30 a.m. Central European Time, live from Warsaw. We will be officially launching the report alongside experts in journalism who will bring the Central Eastern European perspective on the future of the European project. You can register now on our website using the link provided in this podcast's episode description. But uh, back to you, Anton. You have actually since launched a report of your own. RT in Europe and beyond, a detailed research into the exercise of malign influence of the Russian propaganda machine in the context of international media. Um, particularly, you focus on Russia Today, a Russian media outlet that caters to foreign audiences and has recently been banned as part of the seven sanction packages for spreading pro-Kremlin disinformation. Uh, your report focuses on RT branches in various European countries, but also covers more general topics like its coverage of COVID-19. So Anton, can you tell our listeners a bit more background on how the report came to be, as well as uh, some of the feedback you have received in uh, the launch of your report recently? 
the Center for Democratic Integrity, the NGO that I chair, it uh, generally monitors and analyzes attempts of authoritarian regimes to influence politics and societies in Europe. And last year, uh, we decided to do this research on RT uh, exactly, almost exactly uh, a year ago. And I reached out to uh, experts and journalists and academics and members of the civil society to uh, asking them to offer their uh, their perspective, uh, their ideas about and research about uh, various versions of RT. So, in this report, you will find. Uh, chapters on uh, the German language RT service uh, in French language, in Spanish, in English. And it's the first time that under one cover you have um, such a wide perspective on RT. And uh, I think the result, uh, the result uh, is this collection of chapters, but as you correctly said, there are also general chapters like, for example, the, um, the use by RT of conspiracy theories and also uh, a chapter on how RT uh, covered the COVID-19 pandemic, which is not yet officially over, um, but uh, still it was very interesting to see how RT services in different countries covered the pandemic very differently. For example, the uh, the RT service in Spanish, RT en Español, uh, which does not really aim at influence uh, society in, in Spain, but rather in Latin America, uh, they covered uh, the pandemic differently uh, in comparison to, say, the French language or German language RT. In Latin America, uh, this skepticism or even denial of uh, of of the pandemic uh, is not is not commonplace, and RT there focused mostly on the promotion of the Sputnik V vaccine uh, and trying to undermine the trust into into Western vaccines. But uh, in Germany and in uh, uh, France, you would see that RT would even try to play uh, this anti-vax, anti-vaccination card and um, uh, supporting corona skeptics. So uh, it was really interesting to see how they uh, differently covered uh, the, the, the trouble. And of, uh, we presented also uh, this, uh, our report in Brussels and um, uh, the audience, of course, was also interested in uh, uh, whether RT is dead now because of the sanctions. Uh, but I must say that this report is not an obituary. Um, we collected uh, we collected all these chapters even before the escalation of Russia's war against Ukraine in February uh, this year. And uh, as we, as you mentioned, also RT was banned in several in 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 the West in general. It was removed from Twitter. It was removed from um, Google search results from Facebook. It was removed uh, removed from YouTube as well. So they were hit very hard. Uh, but again, this report is not an obituary because uh, RT continues to exist. Uh, now they use uh, alternative platforms. They use alternative uh, video hosting services. Uh, 
their um, their editors editorial offices are still working. Uh, yes, they have been hit really really hard, and the uh, all those sanctions are long overdue were long overdue, of course, because the war uh, Russia's war against Ukraine started not uh, in February this year. It started in uh, February two thousand fourteen. So more than now, more than um, eight years ago. Going back to the survival of RT, we see that uh, they're still working. Of, or, but uh, the, the the audience will probably need to use VPN services to access their websites. But for the um, but for the audience that that they all formed already uh, i think the use of vpn actually adds to the fun of of reading rt uh, websites because it creates uh, a feeling of you know doing something almost illegal or you know dark webish um so i, I think uh, this sentiment uh, is is there but also i think that um, uh, the use of alternative methods of spreading uh, disinformation and propaganda uh, will not go away. RT will play, will continue playing an important role in this. And uh, as we can see, um, Margarita Simonian, the chief editor of RT, she plays a very important role uh, in Russia today. Uh, despite the fact that RT was hit really hard, she's uh, she's one of the main uh, spokespersons uh, on on foreign policy uh, in Russia. Uh, also, she's uh, one of the biggest trolls uh, that uh, who are you know uh, trolling uh, the West on on different on different occasions. Uh, she's close to Putin. And uh, also, we must not uh, forget uh, that RT is officially on the list of Russia's critical infrastructure. So it will continue playing an important role. And also with the rise of uh, uh, alternative uh, services, uh, internet services, and with the technological progress, uh, we will see that uh, RT will have um, in the nearest future, uh, more opportunities to for a, for a comeback uh, to its uh, uh, to its position that it held before uh, the beginning of March this year. Well, thank you for this, Anton, and um, I'll remind all our listeners that a link to the report and there are some fascinating historical cases studied there, as you have uh, laid out, uh, will be put in the description of this podcast so you can see everything for yourself. Uh, but we could go on and on talking about the evolution of RT, but you give a pretty fascinating and concise uh, summary of it in your report. And um, something I specifically want to point out is um, your description uh, of RT being sort of retooled to elaborate more on that, you mentioned that it has been repurposed to rally, quote, information forces, unquote, particularly after Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008. This is an important link to information as a weapon of war. And before I ask you to evaluate how successful it is, I would also actually want to ask you about the criteria, because it's important uh, that we are clear on the criteria that we are evaluating by. Uh, for example, if we're talking about the information war, Earlier, briefly after the start of Russia's full-scale invasion, early on in the campaign in spring, um, UK Secretary of Defense Ben Wallace 
said that Putin has already lost the information war. And I want to ask you, Anton, is our understanding of this information war, is Wallace's understanding of the information war the same as architects in the Kremlin? Is it actually about manufacturing consent or is it rather about manufacturing dissent? Um, you are uh, right to mention the importance of the history of RT, and I will uh, briefly uh, explain uh, this history, and then I also explain why uh, it is important. So RT was created, uh, Russia Today, it was called Russia Today, it was created uh, in 2005, and uh, for several years, uh, up until 2008, RT was um, was an instrument of Russian uh, soft power. It was cons the the concept, the, the the very foundation of Russia today was that Russia needed to have uh, uh, an instrument of soft power, and this is not something uh, intrinsically bad. Every nation is well. Uh, every nation that uh, aims to influence uh, their neighbors and um, and even friends and allies, uh, they need soft power. Uh, this is you know this is the uh, typical and uh, classical understanding of how of how uh, public diplomacy works. So it was created as as a soft power uh, mechanism, and uh, the only criticism of uh, Russia today uh, in this period between 2005-2008 was that it was too pro-Kremlin, yeah? that it was cheerleading uh, for the Kremlin. So uh, you wouldn't find uh, in the uh, generally in in the product in their in their products in their media products uh, what we see now in uh, on RT yeah there's all this uh, uh, malign uh, malign influence malign propaganda um, and then disinformation and uh, and everything that is now uh, characterizing the work of RT and uh, but in 2008 um uh, after or during during and after the invasion of georgia there was an understanding uh in in russia among uh pro kremlin experts and in the presidential administration that russia's soft power failed to convince uh, western audiences that the russian invasion of georgia was justified uh, they saw that all those instruments that they tried to use, uh, this uh, Russia Today and uh, uh, also the radio station uh, Voice of Russia that also existed on the uh, internet uh, as a website in, with, in different languages, in a number of European languages, they all failed. That was the, that was the feeling. Uh, and they decided in 2008-2009 to reconceptualize uh, Russia Today to change it. Uh, basically, we are dealing with two different uh, RTs. Uh, they renamed Russia Today into RT, uh, not to conceal the Russian origins of this uh, TV network, but uh, to, to highlight that uh, RT was different. It was different uh, in the sense that it, uh, it almost uh, ceased to be an instrument of soft power and it became an instrument of malign influence. That was the, the, the new concept, the new idea behind RT. Now, how this helps us explain the efficiency or inefficiency of RT. First, uh, Russia today, as a soft power, 
was a failed project. That was the project that failed. Because the idea behind the creation of Russia Today in 2005 was to create a Russian CNN. They wanted to have a global media that would have a huge influence on, uh, on, the, on pop the population, on the societies uh, in the West, like CNN has or BBC, for example. They wanted to uh, have the same success as not only as CNN, uh, as is this global American English language media, but also uh, they wanted to repeat some successes of Deutsche Welle, this uh, German uh, website and, and radio station and uh, also TV network running in English. So they wanted this and they failed. You know? So we can safely say uh, that it was inefficient. Now, if we, when we are talking about RT, and uh, we would probably start uh, start the the time frame from uh, 2008 2009 uh, we can say that it was only moderately successful uh, why successful at all uh, one reason is that rt relied heavily on the process which i call narrative laundering uh, the idea behind it, uh, this process is that you produce disinformation narratives, propaganda narratives, and you uh, try um, to, to infiltrate the mainstream uh, with these narratives. And then uh, when you infiltrate the mainstream and media environment, the connection between these narratives, propagandistic narratives, and the Russian origins are lost. It's, it's similar to money laundering, yeah, how, how you uh, try to, uh, how people are trying to launder uh, dirty money. So there is no connection to some criminal or malign uh, origins of, uh, of that money. RT relied heavily on this and it was uh, in many ways successful. We could see that uh, journalists uh, all over the world would um, would basically take up some of the some of RT narratives uh, for many reasons. Some of them uh, truly believe that for example RT is uh, as a legitimate uh, media uh, some of them are being, uh, so to say, just a little bit lazy. They would not try to check the information uh, that they use from RT. But this is how pro-Kremlin narratives originally spread by RT become part of the uh, this mainstream media environment. Uh, another success of uh, RT was that it created a model for for other uh, anti-establishment and populist uh, media. Uh, we see that uh, sort of RT in a uh, in a way uh, was a pioneer of um, populist media trying to become global, and this yeah this created sort of a, a blueprint uh, for other media to to follow up and to uh, use similar approaches that RT used and still uses. That is also a success. But still, I, I, would, I would say that overall, uh, the success of RT was really, really moderate. Um, especially when it uh, comes to the technical issues. Uh, for example, in Germany, 
the German language version of RT completely failed to get into the cable. The reason for this is that in Germany you have really strict rules concerning uh, foreign state-funded media, uh, which creates a huge problem not only for RT but for other uh, foreign media connect directly connected to the state uh, to operate in the on the cable network. It uh, also had many problems in, uh, in, in the UK, uh, many problems in France as well, and those problems were uh, connected to the, to the work of the national media regulators. And uh, also it failed as a really global media. Uh, despite the fact that it uh, did pioneer some of the, some of the approaches, uh, in in the global media space, still as a global media, it it failed. Uh, we cannot uh, say that it's uh, close to France twenty four in terms of the viewership. We uh, talking about CNN or BBC is completely useless. This this is just two different uh, two different uh, um, scales uh, where we can see CNN and and RT. Uh, it was also uh, not as successful as the Chinese uh, international uh, English uh, English language uh, media such as CCTV. Yeah. So uh, in this sense, as a global media, uh, RT failed, and um, its influence on uh, on European societies uh, or on Western societies in general is really really limited. So just to repeat myself, moderately successful and um, um, nothing more than this. Now you, you speak of RT's shortcomings in becoming an influential global media or indeed a true source of Russian soft power. But research, including yours, points to how its content seeks to destabilize Western societies, often to the benefit of the Kremlin's political objectives. Um, particular focus recently has been, of course, on the Western support for Ukraine, both material and emotional. A recent article published by us uh, here at Visegrad Inside um, exposed the micro-level reach of Kremlin narratives in sea countries like Poland where even local businesses are susceptible to Russian disinformation. We can expect that with a dire economic situation in Europe, exacerbated by the energy crisis and growing inflation, the deteriorating moods will be indeed a fertile ground for disinformation, and not just in the geopolitical sense, where most would presumably empathize inside with the Ukrainian people, but also in the economic arena. For example, just last week, an estimated 70,000 protesters gathered in the capital of Czechia, a central European country whose government has been an ardent supporter of Ukraine, uh, while its people came together to protest against the soaring energy bills and demand an end to the sanctions against Russia. Uh, to include a harmonious mixture of far-right and extreme left elements coalescing under the Czech Republic first rally and they called for notably an agreement with Moscow over gas supplies and of course a halt to sending arms to Ukraine. Anton, can we view this as an early success of the Kremlin's propaganda arm in mobilizing local agents? And what do you see in store for the near future, this upcoming winter? 
Yeah, well, first of all, uh, indeed, Russia is now very actively trying to uh, to to influence uh, uh, European societies uh, to decrease the support uh, for Ukraine. Uh, at the same time, we see that this support is uh, quite strong, still quite strong. Uh, actually, in spring, I was worried about uh, the end of uh, summer, the beginning of, uh, of autumn. I thought that uh, there could be uh, considerably less uh, social support for Ukraine, but still we, we don't see this uh, dynamic now. And it is uh, very important that Ukraine is now um, has has regained some of the territories uh, lost to Russia in the very beginning of the escalation of the of the war uh, in February. Uh, now it's regained uh, important territories. It creates, I think, now even more political and social support uh, for Ukraine in Europe. This is all very important. Uh, of course, uh, winter will be difficult, uh, but uh, I, I don't expect that uh, these difficulties will be would be sort of catastrophic. They will not be. I don't think that uh, that people will be dying and you know, freezing uh, to death, as uh, as the Russian propaganda uh, tries to uh, tries us uh, to convince. This will not be happening. Uh, yes, uh, uh, we see uh, inflation uh, in in Europe and the West in general, uh, which is. Uh, largely not connected to uh, to the russian war in ukraine it's connected to the pandemic and the consequences of the of the of the, of the pandemic uh, of course we we see that uh, russia will continue mobilizing support um, against uh, against any assistance financial or military assistance to ukraine but i don't think that they will be successful enough uh, the the protest in Prague was indeed impressive. Uh, 70,000 people uh, were present, uh, but we need to look at these numbers in the context of other um, social protests and demonstrations in Prague. And uh, this is of this is a big protest. Yes, uh, there is no uh, denial of this, but this seems to be the maximum what they can do, and this is definitely not enough to try to influence the pol political decisions in the Czech Republic. You know, this is not 300,000 people. Uh, so, uh, and, you know, because these numbers may change something, but 70,000, uh, no. Um, we also saw that it's not, it was not only uh, this combination of the far right and far left. And, and by the way, I don't see it uh, confusing or strange. Uh, this is, uh, uh, this combination is a typical, it's a classical combination of the anti-establishment, anti-system forces. Uh, but also, I think, I think many people were mobilized uh, not uh, necessarily uh, in support of Russia's war uh, or of, of the Kremlin policies, but it's uh, they were mobilized on on the grounds maybe on uh, still connected to the pandemic, for example. I'm I'm pretty sure that Corona skeptics and active access were also part of this uh, seventy thousand strong crowd. You, you point out that perhaps the capacity of mobilizing such social protests 
we might have seen the potential, uh, its biggest potential there. Um, but w what spaces would uh, you say are important to watch in the near future to, to see whether perhaps how RT and uh, its other like-minded instruments adapt to the sanctions and uh, Ukraine's uh, successes uh, in, in, in the counter-offensive? You know, RT and other um, sources uh, and networks of Russian propaganda and disinformation, uh, they, uh, they follow um, a strategy used by other actors, and uh, uh, this is a strategy taken from the, from the Chinese uh, uh, military strategies. It's the death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, you you don't kill your enemy with one cut or two cuts, but when you're giving your enemy one thousand cuts, then the enemy will most likely die. Uh, so RT is just one of the of the cuts. Yeah, or it may be ten cuts, but there are other uh, other uh, sources of disinformation and of Russian malign influence. Uh, it, you know, these sources can be not even connected to media, but be connected to, say, uh, some criminal, uh, global or regional uh, criminal networks, or the, or the workings of uh, Russia's uh, intelligence services. So there are many, there are many instruments of malign influence uh, that Russia is using, and with, um, uh, with these protests uh, in Europe, Again, in order to undermine uh, Western support for Ukraine, uh, they may uh, try to employ uh, local actors. And this is, in, in political warfare, it's always much, much more efficient when local actors are performing what you need. Uh, in comparison to what you can uh, yourself perform, because you will unlikely be trusted, uh, as you know, in comparison to uh, to local actors. So uh, the Russians are trying to do this as well. Uh, but I would also uh, draw attention uh, to other operations uh, that uh, Russia is now conducting. For example, RT is now developing in Africa, and we see that. The arrival of RT uh, in Africa is part of the process of uh, uh, Russian expansion in Africa, which is not only in the uh, not only connected to the media space, but also military expansion, political and business expansion. They are trying to take control of Africa, and frank frankly speaking, uh, knowing uh, European uh, sensitivity towards. Uh, migration from Africa. If you control Africa, you basically control Europe. Uh, when you can, you can control uh, migration routes or illegal migration from Africa, but also Middle East, of course. Uh, that that would be a huge success, of course, for Russia to um, to ex to expand uh, in in uh, in Africa. But also, we uh, need to. Uh, follow closely the developments in Europe itself. Um, I would not be, I think, original to say that the behavior of uh, Orbán's Hungary is um, is problematic. Uh, it is problematic, 
we see that uh, in many ways the rhetoric, the narratives coming from uh, the Hungarian government are not exactly pro-European or pro-Western. Uh, we see a lot of Kremlin narratives in the rhetoric of the Hungarian government. So, uh, in my opinion, this, um, this needs to be followed really, really closely. Thank you.